Our second reading is taken from the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 16 to 18. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person always also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Phil. Do keep that open. Am I on, Charles? Excellent. Uh, let me pray as we come to God's word together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we've already uh, affirmed with our own lips this afternoon that your words are sweeter than honey, uh, finer than gold, that they bring us uh, joy and assurance. Uh, We pray that you would speak to us now uh, through Colossians. Uh, Give us that joy, we pray. Amen. So, our reading this afternoon is about things being put to the test. I've been thinking about things being put to the test rather a lot this week because um, some of the students I teach in the university are starting to prepare for their exams. Um, uh, They're going to be put to the test. My own teaching is going to be put to the test. Now, of course, none of us likes being put to the test, but it is good to do. You know, it's good that students are are checked to see that they've actually learned things and that their supervisors have been teaching them properly. Um, similarly, it's good to test that chicken has been cooked properly. If it's still bright red, it needs to go back in the oven. That way nobody gets salmonella. But when we test things, the test needs to be fair and appropriate. Uh, and a student would rightly object if their exams were completely unfair. Um, so these are historians. It would be completely unfair if they were asked to sit a test on astrophysics. It would be hopelessly unfair and completely inappropriate. In our passage, Paul is warning of those who want to put the Christian church in Colossae to the test by completely inappropriate standards. Uh, You get this immediately in verse 16. Paul begins by telling us, Do not let anyone judge you, test you, examine you, by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. And then a bit later, verse 18, he tells us again, do not let anyone disqualify you. So what's going on? Well, there's clearly a group of people, whether they're inside or outside the church, it's not clear, who are judging the Colossians, putting them to the test and finding them wanting, looking down on them and disqualifying, asking Are they really Christians? That might be a good question to ask. might be a good question to ask ourselves. How do we know we're really Christians? But it's very easy to go about that question in completely the wrong way. So Paul regards this group as little more than a sort of rogue exam board whose verdicts should in no way be trusted. He has a much fairer and more appropriate test up his sleeve to decide whether or not the Colossians are real Christians. We're going to start by looking at the specific issue at stake, 
the, what we call the ceremonial commands mentioned there, and then broaden it out to the Christian life more generally. So the issue at stake are these practices listed in verse 16. Being judged by what you eat or drink, religious festivals, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Now these things aren't immediately obvious what's going on. Paul's talking about specific Jewish observances that this outside group thought Christians ought to keep doing. The Old Testament has a lot to say about what God's people can eat and drink. Um, So the famous one is don't eat pork. Um, The Old Testament prescribed festivals and holy days, and we got that in our reading from Leviticus uh, just now. Things like the Sabbath, the Passover, the monthly new moon festivals. All of those kind of commands taken together we call the ceremonial or the ritual commands. Those commands are distinct from moral commands like the Ten Commandments. So a moral command would be something like don't steal, don't murder, love your neighbor, that kind of thing. And if you've ever wondered why we obey some parts of the Old Testament but don't seem to continue practicing others, that's what's going on here. It's this distinction. The New Testament is very clear that the moral rules are still binding. It's still not okay to steal or murder. You still need to love your neighbor. And actually, as we move into the second part of Colossians, Paul's going to show us a lot more what that looks like. The New Testament's also clear that the ceremonial or the ritual commands are no longer binding. The Colossians shouldn't be doing these things. They shouldn't be faulted for the fact that they're not doing them. So how did the New Testament writers know? What test did they apply? Had God simply changed his mind between Leviticus and Colossians? Well, by no means. As Paul explains in verse 17, these ceremonial commands, Sabbaths, new moons, food regulations, they are a shadow of the things that were to come. A shadow of what? Well, the reality that is found in Christ. This is the test that Paul applies to everything. Does it point to Christ? And the very reason for all of those Old Testament practices, the reason for everything we find in Leviticus, for example, is to point to Israel's Savior, Jesus Christ. And he has fulfilled those laws perfectly. And now that he has come, the reality is here. The shadows are no longer important in and of themselves. So to keep on doing these things is to act as if Christ hasn't really come. I'm trying to think of an example of this. It would be a bit like ordering a a product um, in a store or or online. You, You examine the product, you weigh up the different options, the prices, maybe see what other people think. Um, I hate doing this online, by the way. I'd much rather go into a shop and actually look at it, what it is I'm going to buy. But you put in your order and you get your receipt. And online, the receipt will usually have a little picture of the thing you've ordered. Um, and you might get very excited, you know, look at the receipt and think, yes, I cannot wait for this DVD player or whatever it is to arrive. But when the product finally arrives, it would be very strange to keep obsessing over the receipt rather than opening the box and enjoying what it is you've bought. Silly illustration, but you get the idea. 
Old Testament laws and ceremonies are the receipt for what was going to happen in Christ. Christ has now appeared. Reality is here. We don't need to look at the receipt in the same way. That's the test we should be applying to everything that we do. Is it about Christ? Does it point to the fact that he has come and done what was predicted and foreseen? So this means that it's not wrong for the church to celebrate festivals, for example, or indeed to keep the Sabbath. After all, we've just celebrated Easter. It doesn't mean we shouldn't think about what we eat or drink or what we spend our money on or our time. And it certainly doesn't reduce the importance of the Old Testament in and of itself. If anything, we should treasure it more because it does point to Christ. The point is is that the purpose of all these things has changed. The reason why the church does have certain festivals is to celebrate what Christ has already done. So the Old Testament laws look forward to what Christ would do, whereas New Testament life looks back to what Christ has now done, the reality that has now appeared. So Easter is an excellent example. Easter encourages us by helping us to celebrate what Christ has done. The same is true for gathering on a Sunday. So that's the specific issue that's at stake in Colossae. But I suspect not many of us have been worrying this week about whether we should or should not be keeping Old Testament laws. That debate has been settled for a while. But these verses take us much deeper and broader than simply ceremonial rules like new moon festivals. And this brings us deeper into the passage. It's tempting to feel judged or disqualified based on how well we keep any of God's commands. And to make that the test for whether or not we are real Christians. A test based on obedience. In a sense, these ceremonial commands stand for all of God's commands. Everything that God says we should do. Don't lie. Don't envy. Don't steal. Don't give in to anger, lust, greed. And there were clearly those in Colossae who looked down on the recipients of this letter because they weren't keeping God's commands. And this group clearly believed that they did. And it's interesting that in verse 18, Paul picks out false humility, a sort of fake piety or moralism that that looks really good. Um, think, Think back to the Pharisees who mock Jesus, who look very pious, look very right and proper, very religious, look as though they pass the test of being obedient. Those are the kind of people whom Paul is worried about in Colossae. And just imagine what it might have felt like for the Colossians. You know, it's it's never nice being looked down on, but this was even worse. They were effectively being told that they weren't good enough for God, that they didn't pass the test. You know, imagine living out your Christian life in front of a panel of judges who score your performance, grading your love, your kindness, your self-control, and then totting up the marks and asking, are you really a Christian? Are you really right with God? And we may ask ourselves those questions and feel uncomfortable, and rightly. 
because the point is that everyone fails to do what God commands. We've all admitted this earlier when we said the confession. In fact, the whole of Colossians so far, Paul has been making it clear that in and of ourselves, we do not and cannot please God. So Paul said that by nature we are dead in sin and alienated from God. And anyone who says otherwise is deceiving themselves. Hence the false humility of verse 18. And that's why testing whether or not we're really a Christian based entirely on whether we do or don't do certain things isn't the right test. Actually, it's the Pharisees who end up being completely opposed to God. And we all know how sickening a false humility can be. So how can we tell whether we are or are not right with God, whether we are really Christians? Well, in exactly the same way, we test whether or not we should use those ceremonies. Are we pointing towards Christ? So verse 19, just after our passage, Paul writes of these troublemakers that these words, they have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. So Paul elsewhere speaks of the church as Christ's body, with Christ as our head. We are held together by ligaments and sinews and grow and mature through God working in us. But it all falls apart if we lose connection with the head. It's a graphic metaphor when you think about it. He's talking about decapitation. The moment that something in the Christian life loses its connection with Christ, it's worthless. So that's a good test for us to apply to ourselves and what we do. And it's a good way to think about ourselves. Are we connected to Christ? Is what we're doing pointing towards him? And the good news is that if it is, God will grow and strengthen and mature it so that those sinews and those ligaments get stronger like any good muscle. But there's more here. It means that the true test of whether you are or are not a Christian is, is not simply... Sorry, there were too many double negatives in this sentence. The only true test is whether you are or are not connected to Christ. And how are we connected to Christ except them by faith. It's not about how close you are to Christ, how much like Jesus you have become. That's really important, but that's not the fundamental test. It's more, are you facing towards Jesus or away from him? Are you pointing towards Christ, wanting to be closer? To illustrate this practically, do we say our prayers, however feebly and hesitantly just because that's what we do or because we would like to know Christ more richly and more deeply to, to enjoy his word enjoy speaking to him similarly do we do we simply come to church because that's what we do or is it because we long to spend time with Christ's people and to grow together with them in knowing and loving him you see the distinction, it's not that coming to church and praying is what makes us real Christians. That would be like saying the ceremonial commands are what makes you a Christian. No, it's to see those things as a means to an end. 
the means to something far greater and life-giving, which is Christ himself. As many of you know, my personal hero is a man called Martin Luther, one of the 16th century reformers, and I'm going to close with some Luther. In his writings and sermons, he would often imagine a conversation between the devil and the ordinary Christian, in which the devil puts the Christian to the test in exactly the way the Colossians are. Here's an example. The devil will say to the Christian, you have sinned, you have disobeyed God's commands, Surely that means you are not right with God. It says so in this law. And that means you must belong to me. So the test has been applied and you have failed. Ah, the Christian can say, that's where you're wrong, Mr. Devil. And Luther does actually write Mr. Devil. It's quite sweet. No, Mr. Devil, you are wrong. I am not afraid of you. Because I have a friend whose name is Jesus Christ, in whom I believe And he is the whole point of the law. He has fulfilled it for me. He has condemned sin, vanquished death, and destroyed hell for me. He is bigger than you, Mr. Devil. You cannot hurt me. Christ has promised that where he is, no matter how far I fall short of the law's demands, because I believe in him, I will be with him also. So here is a very different test. Not the law, but the gospel. Not scrupulous, false religiosity, but a trusting faith. How can we tell if we're Christians? By the straightforward belief that Christ and Christ alone has claimed us for his own. And if that's true, The devil and all the Pharisees in the world can disqualify us until they are blue in the face. It cannot stop us being Christ's and being one day where he is. Let me close in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you that there is no one who can disqualify us from belonging to you. Because you and you alone have done everything necessary to complete the law. You have been obedient on our behalf. And you have called us to yourself. Thank you for your grace and your good news. And we pray that we would rest in you and in your promises this week and always. Amen.